Well, that is our prayer this morning, Father, that we would indeed have a growing love for you, for your Son, the Lord Jesus, our Master, our Lord, and our Savior. Father, may the reality of this love be seen in lives of obedience and the transforming power that comes when Christ dwells within. Thank you for our Bibles this morning, Lord. Thank you for the opportunity we have to open them, to hear from you. I pray, Father, that your spirit would have great liberty to work among us. Father, we're all different. We all have a different set of issues going on and different things happening in our lives. And so may the word encourage us, may it strengthen us, may it challenge us, may it convict us. May we be conforming to the image of your son, the Lord Jesus. Thank you for the clarity of your word. And, and Father, help us to take this very seriously. Help us to be careful to implement your word in our lives, to not listen and then walk away and do nothing. Strengthen our hearts, open our minds, give us ears to hear, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if you've ever taken a a phone book and just thumb through the yellow pages to see what you see. I have been amazed at how many lawyers there are in a phone book. But then I turned over to see how many churches are in, a, in the yellow pages, and I've been amazed there too. You drive around the community and you don't think that there's that many churches necessarily, but when you look in a phone book, there are just all kinds of churches. Have you ever noticed that? They're broken down into different sections, all different denominations and all different kinds of churches. And then even taking another step from there, if you've ever taken like a world religions class or read any books on world religions, uh, it's amazing, isn't it? all the different things that people can believe. Because you see, all those churches in the phone book and all those world religions, they're there for a reason. The reason is that they all have a a set of beliefs. They all believe something. They stand for what they believe. And so they've established themselves as a ministry or as a church. It's that way around the world. If you stop and think about it, what is almost always a distinctive of those ministries has to do with how they view the Bible or don't view the Bible, and more specifically, what they believe it takes to somehow win the favor of God, enter into His grace, and get to go to heaven when you die. You ever thought about that? I think this is particularly true of world religions and different faiths. One of the striking world religions that is very different than evangelical or fundamental Christianity in America would be Hinduism, for example. And if you get in your helicopter and go around the world and do a a critique of world religions, you will find that people believe a lot differently than, say, the average Bible-believing Christian in North America. I ran into an article about a huge religious festival that is held every 12 years by the Hindus in India, for example. And it's just striking to us particularly. I assume to them it must be as uh, real as going to Sunday school or vacation Bible school to, to us. Now, let me just tell you a little bit about this. 
It, it is a, a huge Hindu religious festival called Maha Kumbi Mila. I, I don't know what that means exactly, and I don't even know if I pronounced it quite right. It's celebrated every 12 years, and, and what it is is the faithful followers in Hinduism come together at the confluence of these two rivers. One is the, the Ganga River, we call it the Ganges, or, um, and the Yumna, the Yamuna River, Yamuna River, the Ganga and the Yamuna, all right? And these two rivers come together, and they are fabled waters, um, and they, they, they claim that this is the world's lar- single largest religious event. The disciples come in by the millions. They disregard the, the difficulty of the journey. They put out great personal expense, and many of them are very poor. And they brave the chilling waters of these rivers, and they're drawn here, cast the caste system and the economic uh, class are temporarily set aside for this festival, and the festival is led by a group of stark naked holy men who lead a procession of millions of pilgrims down to the water at these rivers. Some of the holy men will sit on, and you maybe have seen some of this on television or on documentaries, some of their holy men will sit on beds of nails or walk over broken glass or lie down on hot coals in their spiritual experience. It's a common sight at this, fellow, at this festival to see worshipers to take these long ritual knives and pierce their tongues in order to sentence themselves to eternal silence as a way to appease, which you may know in Hinduism, they have a myriad, they have millions of gods. And they will cut their tongues, some of them, wanting to appease the gods. One of the Hindu holy books declares that those, quote, who bathe at the conflux of the black and white river, the Ganga and the Yamuna, go to heaven. It states that if you go there and bathe, you go to heaven. Another sacred writing from Hinduism says that, quote, the pilgrim who bathes at this place wins absolution for his whole family, and even if he has participated or perpetrated a hundred crimes, he is redeemed the moment that he touches the Ganga, whose waters will wash away his sins. Isn't that interesting? At this festival, the waterfront is lined with countless shaving booths. Yes, shaving booths in which the devoted will strip themselves bare and have every hair on their bodies shaved off, including their eyebrows and their eyelashes. And every shaved hair is carefully collected and the hair is then thrown into the filthy water of these rivers. And the Hindu writings assure pilgrims, quote, that for every hair thus thrown in, you are promised a million years residence in heaven. Not too bad, huh? If I throw that hair in the water, that's equal to another million years that I get to stay in heaven. Here's an interesting conclusion. This article that was written about this particular festival says this. Millions who come with spiritual hunger depart with peace in their hearts and a renewed faith. Isn't that interesting? Now, that seems very strange and foreign to us. We, of course, here would hold very much to the authority of God's word. We would hold to the reality that God has revealed himself in some very specific ways, namely in the person of Jesus Christ, that God came to earth in the form of a human man and revealed himself 
spoke to us. This is my old cockroach illustration, remember? If you've got some cockroaches and you're in love with your cockroaches and the exterminator's coming and the cockroaches have to go, how are you going to get them to move? You've got to become a cockroach and speak cockroachese. That's, that's what God did to poor, ornery sinners like you and like me, right? He sent His only Son out of His love and His kindness, the Scriptures say, to speak our language and to do more than that, but to ultimately become this once-for-all sufficient sacrifice for the sins of all mankind. And we believe that to be true. We believe that Jesus' words meant something when he said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes unto the Father except by me. And so it is an exclusive gospel that we preach. And it is, in Jesus' own words, a narrow way, isn't it? Few there be that find it. And we would say that the Hindus who gather at these rivers to throw their hair peat particles in to the river to gain another million years that they have been deceived or duped or they believe something that is false. In our own community, we don't have so much of a radical, dramatic, um, widespread participation in such a religion as Hinduism. I assume there are probably some Hindus in our community. We do have multiple faiths, though, don't we? And they believe some different things. There's one group of people that really for the last about quarter of a century has been the fastest growing faith in America. And uh, there's some relatively new buildings in our community. And they teach in part of their doctrine to get to heaven. And it involves the husband and wife relationship. And in their faith, what they teach is that if you are a woman, that after you die, if you're married, you want to be married because one of the ways to make sure you get into heaven is the fact that your husband, who will get to a higher position, there's multiple heavens they teach, they, you, they will get to a higher level. And then after you are in the grave, wife, your husband if he wants to, will call you forth into the spirit, your spirit and you'll be able to pass up into a higher level of heaven at that point. So, let's have something good for dinner today, all right? So that we can uh, take care of it. Well, there's all kinds of things, isn't there? There's all kinds of things. People believe a variety of things of, uh, that, um, you know, that uh, there are many ways to get to God. It's interesting, isn't it, that we live even in a culture and in a community and in a society where what you might categorize it as a postmodern world. That is, that there is now an openness in our thinking and it is a departure of an absolute system of truth. That is, that there can be now philosophically and logically in the postmodern world what we in my generation and older folk would have grown up into a system where you can't have incongruity to a logical system or philo- philosophical lines of thought. For example, you can, if something is true and something else is taught that is not in line with what is truth, then they can't both be right. You can't say two things are true. You can't say two plus two equals four, and you can't come over to this guy's side of the room and say two plus two equals three over here. Oh, yeah, that's okay. It's okay. But, but there has become kind of an openness to this kind of thought in the area of theology and doctrine. And, and in fact, we, um, you know, we've been promoting our fair ministry outreach. We're going to have a booth at the Jefferson County Fair that we have multiple years. And today was the first Sunday school class with with Wayne McKenzie to train for that 
fair outreach. And some of you are relatively new. Let me explain how it works. You know where you have the, the displays, the vendor displays at the fair. We just set up a booth and we put a banner over the top and the banner says, free walking stick with message. That's all it says. People walk up and down and they see it. There's some chairs sitting in there. And what it's designed for is just, there's a whole group of people there. And it sounds kind of weird at first. So you're at the fair, everybody's, you know, they're eating, um, what do you call those waffle cakes, flannel cakes, uh, whatever. Funnel, funnel cakes, that's what it is. And uh, flannel, funnel, waffle, what's the difference? I like those potatoes that they spin out and drop in all that fat and clog your arteries with. That's good stuff. You only do it once a year at the fair, okay? Then do your carrot juice after that. So, and, uh, so we have this booth at the fair, okay? And there's some chairs, and that's about it. Some people get confused, and they come in with their eyes really bright, and they think, they think it says free walking stick with a massage, but it says message. And, and um, they come in, and what we have is we have this heavy-duty square hardwood yardstick that says Fellowship Bible Church on it, and it has our phone number on our website, and it has, I think, part of John 3.16 on it. And on the top of it, it's got this leather band, and a lot of you know about this, and it's got the bead, little beads on the lanyard that go along with the colors of what we call the wordless book. Have you ever heard of it? It's a little book without words, and it's just colors. And, and what it does is it encapsulates, it, it condenses the message of the Bible and God's message to us in this simple way. It starts with a dark bead, and the dark bead represents what? It represents our sin. All of us have a sin problem. And, and then you move on to the red bead. And the red bead represents what? It represents the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. When he died on the cross, he took our sin upon himself. He shed his blood and he took our place at the cross so that we don't have to die for our own sin. All have sinned, but God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. And then you move on to the white bead. And that represents forgiveness of sin. And then it moves on to the gold bead, which represents the the golden streets of heaven and the hope of the believer that through Christ alone, you have the hope of heaven and there's our message. Why would we do that? Why would we set this booth up at the fair? Why would we, in a, in a sense, want to, to go into the community and share this message? Why would we want to send Tom and Heidi Jesser into Africa and support missionaries in these countries with our gospel? Why? Because we believe that there is a such thing as truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and that it alone is the only way you can get to heaven. Now, if you happen to be training for the fair, you're going to encounter all kinds of people. You might not encounter anybody who wants to drop hair into the river so that they get another million years. But you're going to encounter people who have a lot of different ideas and attitudes about how somebody should get to heaven. I know I'm going a little bit longer on my introduction here maybe than sometimes, but just think with me. If you're going to be there and you're going to share this gospel message, you, if you stay there long enough, you will encounter people who will try to tell you this. They will tell you um, that they can get to heaven. And the, basically what I call this system of thought is the redefining God. They're going to redefine God. And what they're going to say basically is that if, if we teach that there's only one way to heaven and we would teach that if... People are sinners and God cannot let sin into his heaven and God will condemn sinners to hell. Then they don't want anything to do with that kind of God because the God that they know and the God that they read about in the Bible is a God of love and he would never send somebody to hell. 
But on what basis are they saying that? They're saying that on their own redefinition of, what God is, of who God is and what God has said about himself. And they, they don't understand the message of the Bible. They redefine God. Other people you're going to run into, and I think this one's the most common, will come up to you and say, no, that's not how you get to heaven. I don't need to get to heaven that way. And because this, look, I know I've done some bad things, maybe back when I was in college, especially or something. But basically, this is the, this is the reward plan. This is the good works versus the bad works. And if God puts all my good works on this side of the scale and all my bad works on this side of the scale, you'll see and God will see that I'm really a pretty good guy and that it's all going to work out. And my good works will outweigh my bad works and God surely couldn't condemn me because of that. And there's all kinds of things we can talk about. There's another one that is very common in our country and a number of of faith systems teach this in our country and it's the repayment plan. It's the repayment plan. And it's this. You know what? I have done some things wrong and I have done some sins and God cannot accept those sins and I might have messed up a little bit but ultimately I don't pay too much attention to that and because what will happen is I can get on the repayment plan. That is, I'll go and I'll have to suffer for a little while but eventually I can get out. After a while, I'll be able to get out and I will be able to move up into heaven. And so it's, it's kind of a bad deal. It'll be bad for a while, but I don't want to mess up any of my fun right now. I'm not going to worry about that stuff too much. And the fact is, I'm going to end up getting in heaven eventually. And the Bible doesn't teach that either. And so here, what we want to ask at Fellowship Bible Church is the question that we try to ask all the time. It's this question. What does the Bible say? What does the Bible say? You see, we can make up all kinds of things, but what are we going to use for our authority? What do we use for the credibility of our message? And it is the the word of God, the Bible, as we believe that God has revealed himself through scripture and through his son, as I mentioned earlier, to us. Well, we're doing a series through the book of Genesis, and I invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 15. I say all that to lay a groundwork for something I want to start into that we're not going to finish today. We're going to have to spend a little bit more time on it because um, we just don't have enough time to cover it. But I think you'll find it kind of interesting. And I've titled our message today, if you noticed in the bulletin, Is There More Than One Way to Get to Heaven? Because I found a verse in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, that I find most interesting and even a little bit puzzling. You'll notice, I think, you'll agree with me when we get there. We're working our way through the book of Genesis. If you're new to us or you've just been coming the past few weeks, I haven't uh, preached for three weeks. We've had special events going on for three weeks in a row. We're just diving back into Genesis now. And for some months, we've been in the book of Genesis. And if you're new to us, I would encourage you, when you go home, find some time to read the first 15 chapters of Genesis. I think you'll find it very interesting. And uh, we're working our way slowly through this book of beginnings where God has laid a foundation for all kinds of things in his word. We're now on the life of Abraham. If you've been with us, you know that. We'll not take much time to review it all, but in chapter 15, three weeks ago, we hit this first part of chapter 15, and we know that it's kind of interesting that God and Abraham have had kind of an interesting conversation We find out just from the question that God asks or the statement that God makes to Abraham that Abraham is now upset. He's, don't be afraid, Abraham. Don't be afraid. 
When Abraham answers, and his name is still Abram, by the way. Some of you might not realize that Abram's going to get his name changed to Abraham. And his wife Sarai is going to get her name changed to Sarah. That's still future in Genesis. We'll get to it. Don't worry. If you hang around long enough, we'll get there. And, but, and Abram answers and he says in verse 2, O sovereign Lord, we see what's bothering him. What can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? You'll recall if you were here three weeks ago that what happened was God had promised Abram that he's going to make a great nation out of him. He's going to repeat that promise here in this passage. But Abram is what? He's getting old. And his wife Sarai is old. And so he's using human logic to figure out something God has promised. And what he's doing is he's making some suggestions to God. And he makes a cultural suggestion to God. Tell you what, God, we've got a problem. The problem is I am an old man. Even a greater problem is that my wife is a very old woman. And in fact, the book of Romans says that Abram, that his body was as good as dead. I mean, think like nursing home level, okay? And God has said, I'm going to make a nation out of you. And Abram says, okay, here's what we'll do. We'll do what everybody else does. I will adopt my favorite servant, Eleazar, and through him, then I will have a lineage and a heritage and you can take Eleazar and the fruit of his loins and you can make a great nation out of him. And God says, no, 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 wait a minute. Stop. That's not it. Look what he says. He says, um, the word of the Lord came to him, verse 4, this man will not be your heir, but a son, look, coming from your own body will be your heir. Is that hard to understand? That's not hard to understand, is it? If you're Abraham, it's not hard to understand, but, but it's hard to believe, isn't it? And you know what I find? A lot of people, that's their issue with Scripture. It's not, and there are hard parts of Scripture to understand, don't get me wrong. But it's not so much that the Bible is so hard to understand, but a lot of people just choose not to believe it. Abraham's struggling to believe something that he definitely understands. Abram, no, your son springing from your loins is going to be this great nation. Look what it says. He took him outside, verse 5, and he said, look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. And then he said, so shall your offspring be. The next verse is, the, is one of the most incredible verses. Look what it says. Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. And I look at that verse and I say, no, wait a minute. Now, let me ask you a few questions, class. Okay? Where is Jesus in this passage? You see, God has just said, Abram, based upon the fact that by faith you have believed me, I am going to count it to your account as righteousness. In other words, speaking in sort of a New Testament manner in this Old Testament passage, this is when Abram gets saved. This is where Abram has heaven promised. This is where Abram came from darkness into light, in essence. This is where Abram now is a child of God. Abram gets to go to heaven. Where's Jesus? See, when Peter was preaching in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, do you remember what he said there? For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby you must be saved. Well, how did Abram get saved without Jesus? Furthermore, where's the Ten Commandments? Where's the Ten Commandments? Okay, this is Abram. 
When's Moses going to come along? Say, 600 more years. 600 more years before we even have the law. Furthermore, as far as religiosity goes, as Paul is going to point to in Romans chapter 4, if we can get to it this morning, Paul's going to point to the fact that when God looked down at Abram and said, Abram, you've believed by faith and therefore I credit it to your, I credit to your account righteousness, you're saved. He hasn't even been circumcised yet. Wow. How can that be? What's going on here? How is it that these Old Testament guys get saved if everybody has to believe in Jesus to get saved? Is there more than one way to get saved? Is there more than one way to come in under the grace of God and enter heaven? That's kind of a puzzling question, isn't it? Unfortunately, I'm not going to be able to finish it all and answer it all this morning. But let's talk a little bit about it. Let's at least break down where I was going here and, and what's going to happen. The, the clock is just about at our cutoff time. And the, the printed on the brochure cutoff time. <laughs> Pastor Van's cutoff time is still a few more minutes away. But let's take a look at this verse. I would like to suggest that we do see in this verse three essentials for salvation for all people of all time. You'll see in this verse three essential things that have to happen for all people of all time to be saved. Do you remember when you were in junior high, did you ever have a combination lock for your locker? You remember that? And uh, you had to do what? You had to remember your combination. You write it down somewhere, make sure you got it because you got to hit the right numbers or it doesn't work. And if you were real cool, you know, you'd, you could shut it, shut your lock and turn it just a little bit. And then you could always turn it right back to that, just that one number and it would open again. And you could, because it would save you having to do your, and then somebody would go down the, down the whole locker spinning all the dials. And oh, I can't remember my locker, no, my uh, combination. You know, it's a little bit like this. This is, this is not a totally accurate picture, but it's a little bit might help your help you, a word picture. It's like heaven has a gate and on the gate there's a lock and the lock is a combination. And certain things have to happen to open that combination lock to get you into heaven. And it's the same for all people. By the way, I want to make sure I say it so you don't think I'm spouting any kind of heresy, but all people of all times are really saved the same way and all people of all time, their redemption comes through ultimately the blood of Jesus Christ. The wrath of God is ultimately only satisfied by the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our job is going to have to be now to figure out how do these Old Testament guys looking forward to Christ come in under this grace. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? But on that lock, there's like three combinations. Let's look at the verse for a minute here and let's at least talk about the first one of the combination numbers, okay? Genesis chapter 15, verse 6 is our, is our verse of interest that we're going to camp on here for another message after this. Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. The reason this is an interesting verse is because when we go to the New Testament, which is where we'll end up eventually, we find that this phrase is repeated over and over. And in fact, we said this three weeks ago, but there are three specific passages where this is used as an argument of salvation by grace through faith alone by no works of the individual. It's in Romans chapter 4, it's in Galatians chapter 3, and it's in James chapter 2. 
In Romans chapter 4, the Apostle Paul is really going to key on this, and he's really going to camp on this, and he's going to show us how not even Abram could get into heaven by his good works. There was no other way, ultimately, to get into heaven except by, and this is combination number one, number on the combination lock, it's faith. Do you see it in the verse there? The first one is faith. It says, Abram believed the Lord. That was faith. And what kind of faith was this? We'll talk about that in just a second. Let me tell you the other two parts, and then we'll come back to it. Uh, The next number on the combination lock is, and he credited it to him. First thing you've got to have to open the lock is you've got to have faith. The second thing you're going to have to come up with is a credit account. You've got to get some credit because you have no merit of your own. So number two, I just call it credit. Somehow, you've got to get something from God that will satisfy his wrath. You've got to get some credit on your righteousness account. This is the doctrine, we call this the doctrine of imputation. There's a big Bible word for you. The doctrine of imputation. We'll break that down and talk about it. The third thing you want to see is what gets credited to your account and transferred over. And there's a couple transfer ways here. The imputation part, two parts to it. Credited. One thing actually is our sin gets taken away and put on Christ. And then his righteousness, the last part of the verse, gets put on us. You've got to have faith. You've got to have some credit. And you've got to come up with righteousness in the eyes of God. Look at the last part of the verse. Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. Three parts of our salvation that are essential ingredients. Let's just briefly talk about faith for just a second. Let's go to the New Testament, look at a couple verses, and then we're going to have to conclude and we'll pick it up next week. Ephesians chapter 2. Many of you will know this verse well, especially if you've come up through Sunday school or you know, vacation Bible school or day camps, this will be familiar material to you. But I want you to notice what the Apostle Paul teaches in Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning with verse 8, look what it says. Ephesians 2, verse 8. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is a gift of God. What's he saying? I have to receive something by grace. What is grace? Grace is receiving something that I don't deserve. It is receiving an unmerited favor. God will give me this salvation, okay, even though I don't deserve it. But how? It is by grace, an unmerited favor, that you have been saved. There's our key word. That would be ultimately credited righteousness to my account, saved from my sin unto God, holy so I can enter heaven through, there it is, faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God. I take it that the faith even is a gift from God. The grace is a gift of God. Not by what? Not by works so that no one can boast. All right? The Apostle Paul is going to key on this principle as well in Romans chapter 4. In fact, let's just turn right there to Romans 4. If you're taking notes and you want to see a couple more verses, let me just read them to you on the way to Romans 4. Titus chapter 3, verse 3, starting there, it says this. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, 
deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Now here's the phrase I'm looking for, Titus 3, 5. He saved us not because of righteous things we have done, but because of his mercy. All right, then going to Romans chapter 4, so that we end up back to Abram, where we started in Genesis 15. Look at chapter 3, verse 28, for example. The Apostle Paul is building an argument now that there is no such thing as a salvation through any other means than faith in God alone. Verse 28 of chapter 3, For we maintain, Paul says, that a man or a person is justified by faith, apart from observing the law. Go down to chapter 4, verse 1. Look what he says. What then shall we say? He's going to use Abram now, Abraham, as a living illustration. The recipients of the book of Romans, the believers who got the letter of the book of Romans, totally know all about Abraham. Abraham. They know all about his stories. They know all about his life. And he is the patriarch of patriarchs. He is the holy of holy men of the past for these Jewish Hebrew believers. And now Paul's going to say something that's kind of interesting. What shall we say that Abram, what then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter? If in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does the scripture say? Now he's going to quote our verse, Genesis 15, 6. Abram believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. He was saved. Now when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. Well, we all understand that. How would you feel if every other Friday you went and picked up your paycheck and your boss said, isn't it great that I give you this gift every two weeks? Don't you love it that I just write you a gift? You say, no way. That's not a gift. I earned it. In fact, you owe it to me. And in fact, if I was terminated, I would figure out very carefully, wouldn't I? Every hour that he owed me some money and I would demand that he pay me up to the end so that I got what? My wages. I earned it. He's obligated to give that to me. Finish the passage here. Verse 4, now when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. Verse 5, however, to the man who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. Isn't that interesting? The person who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as as righteousness. In other words, you cannot do anything to appease the wrath of a holy God. Listen to me. I started out talking about some other faiths and some other religions. I want you to understand something before we leave very much. Make sure you know the difference between what a religion is and what a biblical Christianity is, as in an authentic following of Christ. Religion is me trying to do something that appeases the wrath of a holy God. It is me cutting off my hair, throwing it in the river so I get another million years of heaven because somebody figured out that the gods are pleased with that. And if I do that, then I can do this. 
Religion is always, I have to do this so that this will happen. Listen, the Bible is not a religious book in the sense of teaching a religion or a way to get to God. Christianity and the message of Jesus Christ and his redeeming work at the cross is this. It is that I don't deserve to be saved because I'm a sinner. And furthermore, I can't do anything about it on my own. And only by the love and the kindness and the grace of God does he reveal this to me. And by faith, believing this to be true, I can be saved. And it is through the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ that God's wrath is appeased. There is a penalty or a price has been paid for that sin. As a result of that work of grace that goes on in my life, that God has saved me through Christ, and I've only accepted this by faith, believing it to be true. I don't do anything. I don't, I don't put money in the offering plate. I don't help little old ladies across the street. Actually, I'm still a pretty bad person. But I've come to a place where I know I'm a sinner, and I believe this to be true. And I believe that God alone is the one who has provided this way of salvation. By faith believing, I enter into that salvation. As a result of that, though, Ephesians 2.10 says, I am saved unto good works. It is as a result of my salvation, then, that I will do good works. Why? Because old things have passed away, Paul says, 2 Corinthians 5.17, and everything has become new, and I am now a new creation in Christ. So now the old ways, it's just different. I now follow after Christ out of obedience. Jesus himself said in John 14, 21, he that has my commands and keeps them, he it is that loves me. Okay? It's the, the, uh, the authenticating reality of Christ in me is my obedience then to Christ. But my obedience doesn't get me saved. That is a work of God in my life, saving me from my sin. As a result, then my life is transformed. So religion on the one hand is people trying to do something to say, hey, God, hey, hey, I'm being pretty good here. You need to notice that, whatever it might be. It might be going to extra services. It might be lighting candles. It might be counting beads. It might be saying prayers. It might be going down to a river and dropping hair in it, whatever it is. Hey, 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 here I am. It's good. And the Christian says, before Christ, he goes to the cross and he says, it's no good. I have nothing. It's, I have nothing. Abraham couldn't even make it on his good works. We'll see more of that later. I can't do it. And God says, if you just believe by faith, isn't that interesting? That poor ordinary sinners like you and like me, we don't have to pay for our own sin just by believing the message. Ultimately, the short answer is, let me say this much, because somebody, a lot of you won't be back next week probably. Different vacations and things happening. But let me just say this to put something in your head. All people of all times who God lets into heaven by his grace and his mercy through his love, their wrath, his wrath, his inability to accept sin is appeased only in the ultimate sufficient sacrifice in Christ that was done once and for all. And Abram gets in be his forgiveness depended on a forward look to the cross. When God told Abram, I declare you righteous, ultimately it was an act of faith looking forward to Christ when he would pay the price for that sin. And Abram believed God 
and it was counted for righteousness. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. King David, see, he's way before Christ, committed adultery, committed murder, uh, coveted his neighbor's wife. There's no provision in the law for that. The only thing he could have is the kindness and the love of God. But by his faith, he believed God and it was counted for righteousness. Christ is the one who paid for King David's sin. Looking forward. Just like when we sin now, though, Christ doesn't re-die on the cross. What do we do by faith? We look back 2,000 years to the cross. And Christ, once for all, back there, paid the penalty for my sin and your sin and Abram's sin and David's sin and Noah's sin. And it was only by faith, believing God, that it was counted for righteousness. We're just going to cut off right there, but let me ask you a question as we conclude. If you were to sit down and explain to a sixth grader today what you're counting on for your salvation, what would you say? What would you say? Well, I'm a really pretty good person, and you whip out the scale, and you, and you go to the reward system, right? Or maybe you'll say, well... I just don't believe God will really... He's a loving God. He won't throw people... Oh, you're redefining God. Now, that's not what the Bible says. Where are you coming up with that stuff? Are you making it up because you want to think that way? You see, when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes unto the Father but by me, he meant it. Peter built on that, and I quoted it earlier, Acts 4.12, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby you must be saved. For by grace, Paul said, as we just looked at, we are saved through faith, not of works, lest any man should both boast. What's your faith in? Next week, we're going to look at what that faith looks like and break it down even more. I'll do my very best to be clear and to, to back up a little bit too, make it very clear how exactly these Old Testament saints are saved. That's a little tricky to understand. But this morning as we leave, don't worry about Abram. Worry about yourself. Do you know Jesus Christ is your Savior? Do you know that the blood of Jesus Christ flowed on that old rugged cross one day and He became sin for you? He substituted, and we're going to talk about that, that doctrine of imputation I talked about. And our sin was placed on Him. And His righteousness was then given to my account so that God can look at me just and righteous and let me into heaven. Isn't that something? It's amazing. What are you counting on for your salvation today? Do you know that you're a sinner? Have you admitted that to God? Do you know that God loves you and he sent his only son to die on the cross? That you don't have to pay the price for your own sin. But it's only by faith, believing this, that it can happen. There's no other way to get it. Just by faith, accept this to be real and true. That Jesus died on the cross for your sin and the third day rose again, victorious over death, hell, and the grave. Let's bow in prayer. Well, Father, I pray that your spirit will give clarity to um, these words, and these concepts. Father, help us to examine our hearts this morning and to carefully recognize what it is we would be counting on today to unlock the combination lock to heaven's gates. And Father, if we come up realizing that we're depending on ourselves in some way, would you pr please convict us and and show us that it is only by your grace and love through faith in Christ alone. Father, I pray that you'd work in our hearts and 
If there's anybody here who needs to admit today that they're a sinner and accept your free gift of salvation, I pray that today they would do that, that you would open their eyes, convict them, convince them, completely save them. Thank you for the work of Christ that can be credited to our account. Give us a growing understanding of these things, and we commit ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen.